Good morning. As you find your seats, if you can find your way in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 15, there's where we begin this morning. This morning we continue our search, our search for a godly king. Our search is leading us through the Old Testament. Uh, It will take us to Palm Sunday and the arrival of a king named Jesus. It's our hope and prayer that you know him, that you love him, and if not, that maybe even today you will recognize him for who he is. Well, so far we've done this. We've, uh, we're in our third week of this search. And again, we are looking for a godly king. And our search began way back in the book of Judges. A time uh, in the nation of Israel's history when they had no king. And here's what it says. It says there was no king in Israel at that time. And God's people didn't have a king. So guess what they did? They did what was right in their own eyes may sound good for us at times to kind of do that which is right in our own eyes, that which feels good. But by doing that which is right in our own eyes always leads to that which is sinful in God's eyes. Really what it does is when we do what right in our own eyes, it keeps us from being in submission. In submission to a great God as our King. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Judges. They were not in submission to God's ways. They were just doing what felt good. And man, was it leading to a mess. Last week, we looked uh, to the book of Samuel and we saw a man named Saul. We see that he became the first king of Israel. And how did they pick this king? Well, you know what? It's amazing about God's own people. God's people wanted a king. You ready for this? Like the other nations. God of all the people groups in the world says, I'm going to love some as my own. I'm going to call them out of darkness into light. I'm going to set an amazing love on them that they should be called my sons and daughters. And yet God's own people said, nah, we, not so much about that. We really just blend in and be like everybody else. And we saw that they weren't on mission for their great king. So we got some problems here. If we do what's right in our own eyes, we're not going to submit to the God who is as He calls us to. If we want to have a king like the other nations, we're not going to be on mission for our great God. So it leads us to this week. We're going to hear from a king by the name of David. A king who, you ready for this? Scripture says this king, this king has a heart for God. Finally, this king... God says, don't look at the outward appearance. This king's heart is the one I see, and this king's heart is for me. So maybe we have finally found our godly king. Our search brings us to one that the Bible will lift up and say amazing things about it. Is this the godly king that we need? Or is he? Let's look. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. Let's be mindful, this, this is way back in the Old Testament, but it's still inspired Word of God. It'll never lead us astray. 1 Kings 15, verse 5 says this about David. And listen, if this were what God's Word said about you, how would you feel? How does what is about ready to be said about David 
align with your life and my life. And here's what the writer of Kings says about David. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Wow, did you hear that? David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the Lord in all the days of his life. Except. Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, would You come with power this morning? And would You speak to rebellious sons and daughters, Your children, who need to hear from their King this morning? And God, I'm so excited about this text. And I'm so excited to have the privilege of preaching this sermon. And yet, God, I come before You and before Your people uh, with such fear and trembling because, God, I don't have the ability to tell this story in a way that shows You as glorious as You are. And so, God, would You do that which only You can do? Would You come and would You speak through a broken sinner like me? God, would You open up our ears to hear this story afresh? And so, God, it wouldn't seem ancient and old and way back there and then, but that because Your Spirit is here and because we're in Your Word and because we're focusing on Christ Jesus, would You come with such power that that we could hear this story with life and meaning and substance? And God, would You shine brightly into the darkness of our minds, illuminate them through the Holy Spirit, So we can understand what this story means in in redemptive history. What this story means in the history of our lives. Father, because You love us, rebellious sons and daughters, would You lovingly wrap Your hands, those nail-pierced hands around our hearts and the areas of our hearts that don't beat for You, that they're sinful. Would You lovingly break them? And give us faith and love for You. Father, we're here. We're a mess. We're Yours. We want to walk out of here with our heads held high and our feet empowered with good news. So Holy Spirit, come in such a way that when we leave, we can walk in this truth. May all that is said bring You praise and glory and honor and give us joy. The things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May they fall away and be forgotten. I pray that you and you alone receive glory. In Christ's name, amen. Who took my steps? I guess maybe it's communion. That's probably what we're doing here. But anyway. um, Hey, Mark McGuire. You heard of Mark McGuire? Mark McGuire is back in the baseball world. He's uh, returned onto the field. He's going to be coaching the St. Louis Cardinals as a batting instructor. And Mark McGuire will go down in history as one of the most prolific home run hitters of all time. An amazing, I think he's eighth on the all time list. 
And Mark McGuire did something back in 1998. It was an amazing season for baseball. For those of you who aren't baseball fans, hang on. There's a point to this, I promise. Uh, But Mark McGuire was threatening to break uh, for the first time in years and years and years the single season home run record. Way back in 1927, there was a hot dog eating, beer guzzling, big baseball player by the name of Babe Ruth, who in one year hit 60 home runs. Amazing. No one, everyone came close to that. And it took years and years and years for that record ever to be broken by another New York Yankee by the name of Roger Maris. He hit 61. If you look up Roger Maris's uh, record, you know what they're going to have next to it? A little asterisk. 61 home runs. He did it in a 162-game schedule. Babe Ruth did it in 154 games. But those two records stood for a long time. And eventually, Mark McGuire battling Sammy Sosa in 1998, one of the most exciting summers of baseball. He actually hit 70 home runs in one season, obliterating the old record that eventually would be broken by a guy named Barry Bonds. You want to know something about Mark McGuire? He may go down as one of the most prolific home run hitters of all time. He may have had one of the most marvelous seasons. But, oh, there's an exception clause. Oh, he used steroids. You know, it's amazing what one little mark can do for someone's career. It's amazing what one little asterisk can actually mean in someone's life. We come to the book, uh, the life of uh, the book, if you will, of King David. And interestingly about how the writer of Kings wants to tell us about King David. He's going to say, this king is an amazing king. Are you ready for this? This king always did what was right in God's eyes. Is that not an amazing statement? He never turned away. He did everything that was right. It was an amazing king after God's own heart. This king killed Goliath. This king killed ten thousands of God's enemies. This king brought peace. This king wrote songs. This king was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a lover. He was was a true Renaissance man. And the writer of the book of Kings is going to say, he did what was right all the time. (laughs) Except... Except for that little matter with Uriah the Hittite. Well, let's look a little bit closer at that little matter with Uriah the Hittite. It's an amazing little matter because that is David's exception clause. David's exception clause is going to take us, you want to follow along, you can go back to 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to see now of this exception clause for David. Because David's exception clause is going to take us to a lust-filled king. On the roof of his palace, on one sleepless night, this one exception clause in his entire life is going to take us to the palace of this king who's going to look out from his palace as God's anointed king, and he's going to see an absolutely ravishingly beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. And this godly king who has done everything right in this lust-filled moment 
is going to say, I want her. That's his exception clause. Who is that gorgeous babe out there that happens to be bathing? Who is that woman? And they said to him, they said, King David, uh, that, that is uh, Uriah the Hittite's wife. Man, she's fine. Hey, this is Uriah the Hittite. This is, this is one of your friends. This is, this, this is a mighty man who, who stands up for you. This is one who right now is risking his life for you in the kingdom. And that is his wife. And what does he say? Man, she's hot. Want that? Bring her to me. Bring her to me. What all kinds of consequences that one asterisk brings. King David decides, you know what? I'm going to blow back past what God has for me. I'm going to blow past God's commandments. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And what's right in my own eyes, even this king who always seemingly did right, was adultery. He did what was right in his own eyes, and he did it against a trusted friend and warrior. David clearly on that roof was not in submission to a godly king. He set himself up as the ultimate authority. And you not, not only that, if you look closely at 1 Samuel 12, 11, in the first verse, it says this. It says, at a time when other kings went off to war, we find David lusting on his roof. So it's interestingly, this is probably the month of March. It's probably this month. It's named after uh, the Roman uh, god uh, of, of war, March. At a time where kings went off to war, guess what David was doing? Was he on mission for King Jesus and, and his great God? Was he on mission to God, no. David was sitting back and saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want to instead of being on mission for God. He's actually worse than the kings of the other nation. Isn't that interesting? Here's King David acting worse than the other kings. Instead of being a man on mission, he becomes a peeping Tom. The godly one. The writer of Psalms. A peeping Tom. Certainly not on submission or mission for God. It leads to adultery. Amazingly, in in, uh, chapter 11, Bathsheba makes it very clear that I'm pregnant. By the way, through purification, you are the father. There's no doubt that you're the father. David's got a dilemma. He's now committed adultery with one of his buddies, Uriah the Hittite's wife. She's pregnant. He's off to war. Obviously, he couldn't, Uriah couldn't have been the father. Let me do something about it. I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring Uriah in here. I'm going to have him come from the battlefield. He's going to be all charged up and he's going to want to go home. I'm going to have him sleep with his wife and maybe I can get off the hook here so he doesn't know was me. Uriah is more righteous than David. He says, no, 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 no. There's no way in the world I'm going to go and go and go back to my house and sleep with my wife and enjoy things when, when the Ark of the Covenant is out in the battlefield, when God's people are out there losing their life. I am not going to do it. So David says, I'll make him drunk. I'll get him drunk. And maybe hopefully after some, some pops, he's going to go and realize it's time to be with his wife. And Amazingly, Uriah the Hittite is more righteous as a drunk than David is sober. David did what was right all his life. Oh, except for that part 
with Uriah the Hittite. So what does David do? What does this godly king do who's such an amazing heart for God? Well, you know what he decides to do? I can't get him drunk enough to go sleep with his wife. Here's what I'll do. I'll take my own hand. I'll write a death wish. I'll basically say to Joab the general, who's a big snake, by the way, I'm going to say, hey, put Uriah up toward the front where the battle is the fiercest. And when it gets really, really bad, have everybody pull back and let Uriah stand there. And when he gets killed, don't worry about it. Murder. Are you kidding me? The asterisks of David. Sex and the sword will plague his family as long as he lives. What an amazing exception clause. David did what was right and not in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right for him. You know what's so scary about this story? Not just that he was a religious guy. You know what scares me so much about this? His sins got passed down to his sons. His sexual immorality bears fruit in his kids. That sword and that willingness to kill bears fruit in his kids. And we have a king who will pass on his sins to his sons. As a dad, I pray often. I say, oh God, please protect my boys. Protect my daughters. Protect them from the junk that still remains in my life. Please, God, for your grace and glory, break the chain. Break the chain of performance issues that I have. Don't let them be passed down to my sons and my daughters. Break the chain of my lust and my addictions. God, break the chain. I hope and pray every father that knows Jesus is praying similarly for their children. Break the chain. That one little exception clause. Well, let's look at the, what the consequences of that exception clause. Let's look at to, uh, 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 through 14. This is going to be the consequences. By the way, there's a prophet by the name of Nathan. Uh, Nathan comes to David. His sin has so hardened him that he isn't even aware. I mean, he's sleeping at night somehow, having committed adultery and murder. And it takes a friend named Nathan, a prophet, to come and tell him a story about a rich man who was having a traveler come by his house. And instead of taking from his wealth and preparing a meal from him, he went to a very, very poor man that had one little ewe, one little lamb. And by the way, it's kind of cool that this little lamb's name's kind of like Bathsheba. I mean, there's a real play on words here with this one little lamb, this one little sheep named Bathsheba. David should be getting it, but he blows right by it. He doesn't get it. And it's told in the story that this rich man who has this traveler, he's going to take that one little lamb that used to eat at the table and be fed by this one poor man. It's all he had. He's going to rip it out of his hands and he's going to serve it to his traveling friend. And David is so ticked at hearing about the unrighteousness of this wealthy man who robs the poor of their one little you, by the way, Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba, that David makes an amazing proclamation. He says, that man needs to pay four times for that kind of sin. Guess how many sons David's about ready to lose? Four. 
So he tells the story and David's heart is stirred. It's inflamed with the injustice of someone who could have so much and yet be so callous. And then Nathan in verse 7, reading 7-14, through 14, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And listen to this. And if it were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and has taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Listen, God is saying, you may make it sound like a battle casualty. You may have tried to cover it up, but you, your sword killed him. Your sexual perversion led to this. Look what God says in verse 10. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and they shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Wow. David can defeat Goliath. David can kill 10,000 of God's enemies. But David can't bring peace to his own household. David did what was right in God's eyes all the time, in all ways, except for that matter of Uriah the Hittite. Well, it doesn't take very long for Nathan's prophecy to come true if we turn the page to chapter 13. We're introduced to one of David's sons named Amnon. Amnon uh, appears on the scene in 2 Samuel 13. And he's got a sexual problem of his own. His sexual problem is is he is lusting for and says he's in love with his own sister named Tamar. So much as he love struck with his beautiful sister, did I say sister? Named Tamar? That he sets up a little arrangement that even the King David knew about. He pretended he was sick and he brought Tamar in and said, let me, let me have her feed me from her hand. And when she was there, he says, everybody clear out. I want to spend some time with my sister. I'm not feeling very well. And his sexual perversion got the best of him. And he grabbed his sister Tamar and he raped her. Oh, 
not only did he rape her, he then hated her, despised her, scorned her, and said, get away from me. And left her in disgrace. Family in crisis. Have you been there? Are you kidding me? This is David. This is the one who did what was right in God's eyes and always except this is David. Family in crisis. And let's see how a family reacts to this horrible situation. 2 Samuel 13, verses 20 through 22. This is now Amnon's rape Tamar. Tamar's been left scorned. I mean, she's been left. In verse 20, and her brother Absalom, we're going to hear more about him. Here's another one of David's sons. Uh, her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? I mean, the been with you is in the biblical sense. Has he been with you? Listen to the amazing good advice this brother has. Ready for this? Now hold your peace. My sister, he is your brother. Don't take this to heart. I know that there are many here who have been abused at the hand of family members. And somehow a family cover-up is more important than the truth. Some of you women have been told, don't take it to heart. I'm sorry. It's an abomination in God's eyes. And He wants us to deal with sin directly. And if this is your pain and, and there's your sorrow and your story, I pray that you'll get help and counseling. And, and I'm sorry. But here's Tamar, raped by one brother. Now another brother saying, don't really take it to heart, sister. It's your brother. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, let's make it clear, he heard of all these things. He was very angry. Good for you, King. Good for you. You got a little ticked. <laughs> and you did nothing. You got a son who just raped a daughter. You got another son who's saying, cover it up. And now you're going to say, I'm angry. In Band of Brothers, our men's ministry for the last several years, we talk about an authentic man as one who avoids passivity, which sinful men like you and me always have the propensity to go toward passivity. When our kids are going awry, let their mother handle it. Let me back out of this. This is difficult. Don't like these. And here we have King David, who, by the way, did what was right in God's eyes all the time and always except who does nothing. Amazing how this family is spinning out of control. And then you have brothers in denial. It says this after that. It says that for two more years, Absalom and Amnon don't talk to each other. That's healthy, isn't it? 
We got a major white elephant in the room. We have two brothers, one who's raped another sister. And they decide, you know what? Let's just don't talk to each other. So Absalom takes matters into his own hands. Waiting two years, he sets up a little party for David's sons. It says, when all the party and when the drinking is going on, when I give the word, I want you servants to kill Amnon. Kill my brother. Kill my rapist brother. My dad's doing nothing. I'll take it in my own hands. I'll kill him myself. Sexual sin of David's is bearing fruit and running out of control. The sword of David is bearing fruit and it's ravishing his own family. And now we have Absalom. Absalom. If there was a character that could be played by Absalom, it'd be Fabio. It may be a little bit old. You know Fabio? Fabio, I mean, he's known for his, his bulk, his good looks, and probably more than anything, known for his hair. I mean, this is, this is Absalom. Let's, let's read, read a little bit about Absalom uh, in 2 Samuel 14, verses 25 through 27. It says, Now in Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish on him. I mean, this, this dude had it all. And when he cut his hair on his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed out his hair of his head. It was 200 shekels by the king's weight. Who the heck cares about how much Absalom hair ways. It's irony, folks. It's God's way of telling a story saying this, this really good-looking Adonis man, who's a murderer, by the way, this amazingly good-looking guy, his hair was his crown jewel. He was the blow-drying kind. He had the fans going. I mean, he had the locks. And it worked. His hair would be his demise. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Absalom kills Amnon. Um, he, dad, dad does nothing, so Absalom runs from his dad. He spends three years, three years from his dad's uh, presence. Three years. And what does David do as a godly man who did what was right in God's eyes all the time? Nothing. It takes another story to convince David to bring back Absalom back to Jerusalem. And when he brings him back, guess what? Two more years, he ignores him. Dads, do you know what it does to your kids to ignore them? Dad, do you have any idea what it does not to deal directly with your son and or your daughter and their life and their sins and your sins being passed on to them? It leads them to rebellion. It breaks their heart. And so what does Absalom do? Absalom says, I'm going to take matters again into my own hands. I've already killed my brother Amnon. Let me now kill my father David. I'll set myself up as king. In 2 Samuel 15, 6, it says that Absalom started to rule 
for the people. And it says this, he turns the heart of the people to himself. David now has civil war. Hey, listen, this guy did what was right in God's eyes all the time, except, and now he has civil war. And now he has his own son named Absalom chasing him out of Jerusalem. Absalom becomes a stench in his father's eyes. He runs his father out of town. He's setting himself up as king of Jerusalem. He's loved. He's beautiful. He's wise. He's crafty. He's got his father on the run. He's getting advice. What should I do to establish my kingdom? And remember the words of Nathan, by the way, saying, you did this in secret, but there's going to be one who's going to be close to you that's going to do this in broad daylight called adultery. And so he gets advice from an advisor, and here's what the advisor says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21. It says, Go into your father's concubines, his harem, those women connected with him. Go into your father's concubines, biblically, whom he has left to keep the house. And all of Israel will hear that you made yourself a stench in your father, to your father, and in his nostrils. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Here's advice he gets. Uh, hey, you know, why don't you just go and prove your manhood? Take your dad's concubines. So here's what they did. Verse 22. So they pitched a tent. For Absalom, where? On the roof? Where did it begin? On the roof? Some irony here? I mean, is this unbelievable story that God is telling us? Here we see sexual sin completely out of control. The sword completely out of control. They pitch a tent for Absalom on the roof. What perversion! And Absalom, Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. He was a stench, it said, in his father's eyes. The civil war that pursued, ensued, killed 20,000 people. David did what was right in God's eyes all the time of his life and always, except, except for that matter with Uriah the Hittite. The sins of the father are so amazingly, horrifically passed down to his sons. The sins of the father are manifesting themselves in his sons and they're in full rebellion. And yet, unbelievably, unbelievably, David the king would have compassion on his son. Let's look at 2 Samuel 18.5. Joab the snake, who's the general of, of, of David's army, and others are running after Absalom. Uh, there, there's a civil war that's taking the lives of 20,000. And here King David, he let's look at 18 verse 5. Listen to the tenderness of a father. Listen to the tenderness of a father whose son is so radically out of control. And all of us dads know and understand at least a glimpse of this father's heart. And the king ordered Joab 
and, and others to say, saying this, deal gently, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The one who's killed your son Amnon? I mean, the one who's pitched a tent and defiled your concubines? The one who's run you out of town? Deal gently with him. He's my son. He's my son. Deal gently with him. He's my boy. And God's irony, Absalom and those locks of hair get caught in a tree. And Absalom's hanging by his hair in the irony of God, his crown. And the mule goes running back and there he is hanging in midair. And a noble one of David's who heard deal gently with my son tells the general, Absalom is here and he's safe. Joab the snake kills him. At the end of this, we read when David receives the news that his rebellious son Absalom is now dead. In verse 33, we read, And the king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom. My son. My son. David is unable to die for his rebellious son. And just laments and cries out, Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. What an amazing love a father would have for a rebellious son. Willing to die for him. Is there any hope in finding a godly king? Is there any hope of finding a king without an exception clause? And we have to realize, Orangewood, for us to get this story is that we are those sinful fathers and mothers that are passing on the putridness of our sin to our kids. That we are those rebellious sons. You are, and so am I. Can anyone break the chain? David did what was right all the days of his life, except. Let's pray. Father, we need a king that's better than David. We need a king without an exception clause. We need a king who can break the chain, who can stop the sin being passed to the sons and daughters. We need a king who's godly. We need a king who loves sinners like us. We need a king who will die for us. Not just want to. We need a king
Give us Jesus. Amen.